This holiday season, don't miss out on your chance to stock up on your favorite supplements during the Black Friday Cyber Monday sale at my online Fullscript Supplement Dispensary, drhoffmanstore.com. November 25th through 29th, five days only, get 10% off and free shipping on my entire inventory of top supplements at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. It's the safest and most convenient way to purchase my curated supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast, free shipping and optional refill reminders via text or email. It's safe, secure, and includes world-class customer service. Reinvest in your wellness goals with savings on supplements. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com for 10% off and free shipping for five days only from November 25th through 29th. That's drhoffmanstore.com. drhoffmanstore.com. If chocolate is your weakness, the real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Chocolate can be your strength. I've been searching high and low for cocoa products that deliver meaningful amounts of healthful flavanols with great flavor and minimal sugar. So I'm thrilled to have found Flava Naturals. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. But you need to eat five or more ordinary dark chocolate bars every day to match the flavanols consumed in most of these studies. Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate Cocoa Powder and beverages deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. For more information and to order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Uh, today's subject is melatonin, and, it, and it's very timely because uh, you know, we've been planning to do this for a little while, but uh, just yesterday, uh, headlines in the Wall Street Journal uh, blared, parents are giving kids melatonin to help them sleep. Doctors have concerns. Parents turn to supplements to treat kids' pandemic-induced stress and sleep problems, but is long-term use okay? And even worse, uh, about a month ago, I wrote a newsletter article uh, which reported that we were regaled with headlines like these. Melatonin poisonings in kids jump 530% in 10 years. Melatonin supplements are poisoning children and Pediatric hospitalizations due to accidental melatonin overdoses spiked in the last decade. So the concerns have been raised over the increased use of melatonin, especially during the pandemic. Uh, people were uh, suffering from coronasomnia, I guess, a phenomenon that occurs when your circadian rhythms are interrupted. And you don't have to go to work. Uh, and so uh, what's up with melatonin? Well, I can't think of a better person uh, to talk to this talk about this subject with then today's guest who is Deanna Minnick uh, and Deanna has written uh, a really fabulous review uh, in the journal Nutrients it's just out 
And it's entitled, Is Melatonin the Next Vitamin D? A Review of Emerging Science, Clinical Uses, Safety, and Dietary Supplements. Uh, Deanna is a PhD. She's uh, author of numerous uh, scientific articles and books. Uh, she's one of my favorite lecturers. Uh, she really uh, puts across lots of very, very important concepts in the field of nutrition. And she's a reliable source on a multitude of subjects. So she's turned her attention to melatonin, and uh, we're going to find out more about it. So uh, welcome, uh, Deanna. It's a pleasure having you on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks so much for your time and for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Ron. And uh, you're right. This topic is uh, very top of mind for so many people. It couldn't be time better uh, on the heels of the Wall Street Journal articles. So this will be great. Okay, so, so tell us a little bit about uh, melatonin and also uh, why the focus of your article uh, has been, uh, is melatonin the next vitamin D? That's interesting positioning for melatonin, uh, juxtaposing it with something that is kind of like the Swiss army knife of nutrients. <laughs> Very well said. I think melatonin wears a lot of hats and so does vitamin D. So yes, uh, we published this uh, 40-page review article in the journal of, uh, which is called Nutrients. And so why vitamin D vis-a-vis -vis melatonin? So one of the things that caught my attention as we were going through the literature, which I felt was warranted because here we are coming off of the pandemic, melatonin and vitamin D were included in protocols for immune health. So then that led me to query, well, what is it with melatonin? Maybe I don't know enough. So we rolled up our sleeves, went into the literature. And what's really interesting about vitamin D, as we all know, we many people believe that, uh, you know, so many people are deficient, right? We're deficient in vitamin D. Why is that? Well, are we not getting enough sunlight? Sunlight in order to convert the precursor vitamin D in the skin to the more active compound of vitamin D in our bodies. So, you know, even during the pandemic, there was some discussion about sunlight and our exposure and being in nature. And then as we start to look at melatonin, what we see is that melatonin is like the opposite of vitamin D in that it needs darkness. So not sunlight, but darkness. And the only way that we produce melatonin from the pineal gland is in the middle of the night when we have the most amount of darkness available to us. So if I think about those two together, to me, they're like brother and sister. So vitamin D during the daytime hours, and then melatonin during the nighttime hours. And then together, they form this clock of the circadian rhythm balance. That's kind of how I see it. I mean, we can unpack and go deeper into you know, melatonin as a hormone, vitamin D being looked at as a hormone. They're both in the skin. They're both fat soluble. Uh, and I am really raising that question of, you know, perhaps melatonin is a nutrient because we do go low on levels throughout the lifespan, much like vitamin D. And, and in your article, you do a really deep dive on uh, melatonin. And, you know, melatonin is associated with its uh, applications for sleep. You know, it's the, you know, the sleep nutrient. People take melatonin at bedtime or potentially for, for jet lag, you know, to reset your circadian clock. And we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, the best uh, dosage regimens, according to research for each of those problems. But uh, in your article, you beautifully elucidate that uh, melatonin, uh, has ubiquitous functions in the body. It, it's very 
Uh, pleiotropic is a fancy word that we use yeah, sometimes in science, uh, which mm-hmm. means that it's got a, a multiplicity of actions. That's right. And in fact, uh, the one that's most intriguing to me is not so much its role as a hormone produced from the pineal gland, but more in alignment with the mitochondrial regulation as it relates to oxidative stress. And I just want to unpack that a little bit more because, you know, if I just think of a laundry list of all of the functions of melatonin, yes, we think of it as a hormone, but it's an antioxidant, it's anti-inflammatory, it modulates the immune system, regulates the mitochondria, and it's used for so many different clinical applications. You know, just thinking of sleep is just way too narrow for what melatonin can do. So if we think of the antioxidant effects, and for some of us, our eyes kind of glaze over when we hear that word because it's been around for a long time. But here's the thing. Um, When I went deeper into the literature on melatonin, what I learned is, first of all, it's not just fat soluble like vitamin D. It is amphiphilic, which means that it likes water and it likes fat. It can play in both arenas. And so as a result, that can make it very transportable and usable in different parts of the body. It can cross the blood-brain barrier. It can be found in the blood, which is more aqueous. So from that functional point of view, just being able to play in multiple arenas, melatonin is really good at that. And then there's been some work by Dr. Tan, Dr. Ryder. These are some premier melatonin researchers in which they have found that melatonin can scavenge, just one molecule of melatonin can scavenge up to 10 reactive oxygen species. Like this number has stuck in my head. One melatonin can clean up 10 free radicals, whereas something like vitamin C can only do like one or two. You know, we look at vitamin E and, you know, it's pretty modest because that's just fat soluble. And what is also interesting is that melatonin can stimulate other antioxidants to be produced in the body like glutathione. So when we think of the cell and we think of the mitochondria, kind of that mother of the cell of its its metabolism, melatonin is actually highest in mitochondria. And I think it's for good reason. It's really helping to keep oxidative stress in balance and keep those oxidative bursts uh, quelled is, is how I see it. So, so it, as a result, we can see many applications of melatonin just for that, just by itself. So, so there's one theory that uh, we, you know, as you mentioned, we are chronically uh, melatonin deprived. Because actually, I have a, in front of me a study uh, which is entitled "Outdoor Light at Night in Relation to Glucose Homeostasis and Diabetes in Chinese Light in Chinese Adults." So what could mm-hmm. outdoor light at night have to do with diabetes? Well, what they're saying here is that uh, the the pervasiveness of light, you know, in the modern age uh, is increasing uh, the likelihood of diabetes. Now, how could that be? And, you know, in the article, they speculate that this may be via uh, the mechanism of, of melatonin. So so how does how could that possibly work? Yeah. And in fact, I'm so glad that you bring that up because one of the things that we talk about in the paper is what we call darkness deficiency. So when you're referring to that paper, what they're speaking to specifically is artificial light at night. So that's inappropriate light and it's coming from a non-natural source. And when we have that artificial light at night, the retina cannot 
connect to those signals in the brain to get the pineal gland to produce melatonin. So how does that connect to diabetes? Well, we, uh, if we look at diabetes as an accelerated aging condition, which is essentially what it is, right? You know, we, we see greater levels of cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. Uh, great. I mean, anytime you're rocking the boat of insulin, you're changing up cortisol, glucose, you're accelerating glycation products. And so that is very oxidatively damaging to the cells and uh, has implications for overall function. So with melatonin, what we can do is, is help to reverse or at least buffer uh, someone from the effects of, of that accelerated aging through its impacts on oxidative damage by helping the mitochondria to quell that because you know quite honestly you know we live in a highly technological environment these days i mean you're doing lots of traveling you know there there are benefits of of having technology being connected with many different parts of the world but we are falling out of our natural rhythm and the natural rhythm is connected to circadian rhythm and when we don't have enough of that darkness at night, which, you know, we can look at as a deficiency or an insufficiency, we can't get that pineal gland to produce adequate amounts of melatonin, thereby we have distortions in metabolism. And then we start to see up regulations and things like uh, insulin uh, resistance and a whole host of different things, even cancer. And I know we're going to probably get into cancer, mm -hmm. but... I, I have even more concerns with that. And there's a link, as we all know, between type 2 diabetes and oncogenesis through that link of insulin resistance. So, of course, it's all connected. And, and indeed, uh, you know, one of the popular interventions for cancer, you know, particularly some of the cancers like prostate cancer, breast cancer, uh, you know, based on, on some research which you cite in your paper, uh, is melatonin and, and relatively high doses of melatonin more than you would yeah. give for, you know, ordinary sleep purposes. Perhaps for sleep, you take a, you know, 0.5 or one or maybe up to three, but you wouldn't take 20 or 40 or even as much as 200 as some people are proposing for cancer. So, so what could be going on there? Well, and, you know, one of the experts in this area, if anybody wants to go narrow and deep, is to look up the work of Dr. Paolo Lissoni, L-I-S-S-O-N-I. -S -S he's, uh, goodness, he, he's been a pioneer in this area for about three decades. His work started to be published in the 1990s. In fact, I was even thinking of reaching out to him because the, the enormity of what he has contributed to melatonin research as it relates to cancer and different types of cancers and what it seems to do uh, and what he has shown in his work is that when you give high dose melatonin to to patients who are undergoing chemotherapy it makes the cancer cells even more receptive to the chemotherapy and actually can protect the normal cells the non-cancerous cells so it, it has this uh, double-edged type of approach that is beneficial. So high doses, uh, you know, between 20 to 50 milligrams, and in some cases you have mentioned even higher, uh, what I've seen in the literature is a, a, that particular range, 20 to 50, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, being used short-term as, as people go through chemotherapy and helping them with the response to that chemotherapy. So how is that working? You know, again, I think it gets back to the mitochondria. I, you know, I think as a scientist, Ron, I mean, I, I think in mechanisms. And if we can understand the mechanisms and say, okay, we know it's highly 
um, free radical scavenging. It's located primarily in the mitochondria. It's anti-inflammatory. It it has all of these functions. Then you start to piece together what clinical conditions it would be used for. So taking that science into clinical application, which is why we see a broad swath of so many different applications. Okay. And a a show note, uh, folks, if you're hearing uh, some peculiar noises in the background, uh, don't think that it's your audio uh, device or the quality of this recording. Uh, It's actually, for some reason, people in my apartment building have decided to do some construction in an adjacent apartment. That's one of the drawbacks of uh, living in Manhattan that we have to cope with. But I think you'll be able to hear us pretty clearly through the uh, uh, auditory distortions that we're getting. Yeah, uh, I think it's okay. I can hear you clearly. Good, good. Okay, so uh, when it comes to uh, this this darkness theory, I, I wonder uh, if uh, there may be uh, some implications for how we use melatonin seasonally uh, because uh, winter is a time of darkness. You know, I awaken to uh, the dark in the morning when I get up at 5.30 or 6, uh, and it's better now that they've gotten rid of daylight savings time, thank goodness, but then yes. it gets dark very early. So we're, <laughs> we're kind of bathed in darkness, although we use a lot of artificial light and we peer into our devices, and that triggers the, the pineal to suppress melatonin. Light suppresses melatonin melatonin, darkness enhances it. But I wonder if, if perhaps people suffering from depression uh, may be at risk for worsening their depression uh, by uh, taking too much uh, uh, melatonin during the, the winter season, that it might have a kind of a, a somnolent effect on them, you know, putting them into a, a sleepy state. That is a very interesting point. And I must say that we didn't delve so deeply into looking at depression and anxiety and these types of conditions. But just to talk very seasonally, what you're saying is extremely plausible, right? So um, if we have more darkness and it gets dark earlier, then chances are we may be producing more melatonin unless we're trying to override those signals by having more light at night. How are we eating that's differently? What are our sleep patterns? So when I look at melatonin, I'm looking at the entire tapestry of all of the different biomolecules that would be light regulated. So even looking at the circadian rhythm of other hormones like thyroid hormone and cortisol and testosterone, which are typically higher during the morning hours. So if there's a tug anywhere in that systems web, we're going to see a distortion. So naturally, if we're just moving according to seasons, maybe there's a reason why we produce or theoretically produce more melatonin during the winter months when it's colder, we might have more Mm -hmm. stresses, we might have more food shortage, uh, you know, just more ancestrally speaking. So we're our bodies just through nature are accommodating. Mm -hmm. I I must say, I haven't looked deep into seeing if people with seasonal affective disorder um, are Specifically, SAD or not. Right. Because the ways to counteract SAD, and I use this and, you know, many of you, you listening to this, use this technique, is I awaken to the darkness, but I have a, a light, uh, which gives me an SAD light, which I turn on. Yeah. And it's close to me as I wake up and, you know, read the newspaper uh, on my device, which also provides me with light in my eyes. And that is an artificial way to get light into my eyes uh, early in the morning, which has an activating effect, uh, dissipating the melanon- melatonin that would normally uh, keep me uh, cozily asleep. Right. 
<laughs> and also just the, yes, the darkness overall just uh, is very right it just feels um and especially you live in a very urban area so it's good that you're able to um have that degree of darkness to feel more comfortable with sleep but yes you're right having that bright light at night that's why it's not just darkness deficiency and having less darkness at night it's also making sure that we go outside that we get that morning light first thing that's really important for priming again our retinas signaling that circadian rhythm, you know, even seasonally. Uh, so yes, that's really good that you do that, that uh, you take active steps to to ensure that your eyes are getting that signal early. And I do take melatonin at, at bedtime. So I'm kind of, uh, in a way, kind of overcoming the uh, challenges of uh, light excess, you know, because we got the lights on, uh, you know, artificially uh, in normal times of darkness. And then in the morning, I kind of offset that by by increasing the light exposure. Uh, okay, you were uh, very much uh, instrumental in, in uh, addressing the, the pandemic and looking at uh, potential nutritional support uh, for COVID. And among the therapies that was proposed uh, was melatonin. And in fact, uh, yeah. some of the protocols for melatonin, some of the more innovative protocols uh, suggest that for mild to moderate cases, you take, I don't know, three to five milligrams of melatonin. And for more serious cases, mm -hmm. you up the dosage according to, you know, how serious your COVID manifestations are. Uh, I have an article uh, here in front of me, uh, which headline is melatonin could be a potential therapy for long COVID symptoms. And mm. it's, it's based on mm -hmm. a study, possible application of melatonin in long COVID. They say that melatonin is cryoprotective. Uh, it protects against, you know, temperature extremes, cold. It has anti-inflammatory antioxidant, immunoregulatory activity, as you've said, and has been seen to impair viral infections, play a role in circadian rhythm maintenance, which is often distorted in long COVID. And, you know, blood sugar regulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, glutathione support. They say melatonin could potentially be a therapeutic agent in treating long COVID symptoms. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, mechanistically speaking, uh, there is some emerging work on what's called phase separation. I don't know if you've heard of this, Ron, but... Mm -hmm. um, essentially looking at how a virus takes a cell over and the, the steps in order to enable that to happen. And so melatonin can uh, essentially interfere with that process of a virus taking resident, residence inside the cell and then, you know, overriding its, its cellular machinery and that type of thing. So this is being talked about in the literature as um, using melatonin to help with phase separation. What's also interesting on the immune front is not just looking at COVID and situations of cold, flu, and imbalances there with viruses, but also autoimmunity. Mm -hmm. So that was a surprise for me when I did the, um, when we were working on the review, as we delved into the literature, I was surprised to see that there were some initial papers looking at even uh, patients with MS. Mm-hmm. And looking at how perhaps melatonin is helping with modulating the gut microbiota. Um, there seems to be some initial work on interaction with polyphenols, which we know is very, very hot right now. And looking at postbiotics, you know, that's still very nascent. And I don't think we have a, a set um, <laughs> way that all of that happens. Right. But, you know, th this thing of MS and, and seeing a better quality of life in people with MS, even with lower doses of melatonin. 
So that was interesting to me. Um, and a parallel you know, with vitamin D, by water. the way, because, you know, vitamin D Correct. is also Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Right? yeah. Exactly. In, in addition to uh, MS, uh, there's also been some clinical work on Hashimoto's thyroiditis and looking at uh, not just melatonin, but vitamin D together with melatonin. So again, it brings us back to, is there this complementary synergy between vitamin D and melatonin? I kind of see it as the yang and the yin. You know, one is responsible for one half of the circadian rhythm, and perhaps the other is is taking charge of the the darkness aspect. But of course, there are a lot more things that fall into that. But I do think that there's something here about circadian rhythm and imbalance as we see it seasonally. You probably have seen this. This is just coming to mind for me right now. This is not in the paper, mm-hmm. but there are um, set aspects of seasons and how they correlate with diseases. So even birth, date of birth can Mm -hmm. correlate with adults onset of certain, it doesn't mean that you're predestined Mm -hmm. to certain diseases. And it's not your astrological sign, but it's it's actually the influence of the seasons. Right. So the pregnancy in the vulnerable states of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So maybe in the first one to three months, if if the mother was pregnant during the winter months with low vitamin D, and then the outcome of the, the fetus, the infant, ultimately, and having certain vulnerabilities because of not having certain nutrients during that preconception, conception, and even um, in utero phase. So that that's very interesting to me just to be thinking about that as it relates to autoimmunity, seasonality. I'm glad that you brought up the seasons, the connection with melatonin, and even vitamin D. And there, you also write about uh, the influence of melatonin on uh, uh, GYN issues, and in particular on uh, fertility. That That's an interesting mm-hmm. one. It is interesting. Yeah. And, and in fact, when I think of uh, reproductive health overall, because we're connecting now into estrogen, progesterone, I just saw a paper the other day looking at the sex hormones as they relate to melatonin and that there can even be this cyclic approach on a monthly basis with melatonin. So not only do we have a diurnal night and day type of uh, connection to melatonin, but there may also be a monthly connection. There may, we've been talking about the circannual or the seasonal aspects. So melatonin overall, I think is connected into our rhythms. If we think of, uh, yeah, infertility and um, one of the aspects mechanistically that can help to better ensure more fertile outcomes would be that of quelling oxidative stress, you know, looking mm-hmm. at sperm, looking at uh, egg and making sure that they are viable and able to survive. So reducing those pro-inflammatory cytokines. Um, but yes, that has, um, melatonin has been used uh, in order to help with pregnancy fertility, as well as other conditions that would interrelate with that, like PCOS and even mm-hmm. And I was really excited about this one because I, uh, as a teenager and into my 20s, had endometriosis. And so now looking at uh, dosing of melatonin, helping to reduce things like endometriosis pain and incorporating that into clinical protocols. So that's very promising. And, you know, in your very extensive survey, you know, you allude to impacts on glaucoma, on retinal diseases, perhaps macular degeneration, uh, on migraines, on yeah. tinnitus, mm-hmm. on attention deficit disorder, uh, you know, it's it. Like I say, 
pleiotropic effects. You know, when something so profoundly affects uh, the endocrine system and, the, you know, the redox pathways and inflammatory pathways, it's got to have an impact on a variety of diseases. And this is why I get a little bit frustrated when melatonin is pigeonholed for sleep, because I yeah. think that... Yeah. You know, we need to really look at the root cause of why people are sleeping poorly. You know, and what I think melatonin is much more connected into is that of circadian rhythm. So if there's a circadian rhythm disturbance or imbalance, such as with shift workers or people that are experiencing jet lag, or maybe they work in a mine, so they're around changed levels of darkness and light, you know, then there, there could be a circadian rhythm imbalance. You know, I even think, Ron, I, I've been querying just thinking of my own interrelationships with these concepts of intermittent fasting. You know, we know of the mm -hmm. connection with intermittent fasting, circadian rhythm, you know, just sharpening and making sure, sure. that uh, we have good healthy rhythm. And, you know, just thinking about melatonin. Yeah, or the, and the time the that we eat, that. when we eat is considered what the, the German oh, word is. It's a tight, it's a tight gaber. It's a time giver. Yes. It's something that actually helps to establish our circadian rhythms in addition to patterns of light and darkness, activity and inactivity uh, and so on. So yeah, there you have it. All right, let, let's pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. And, and in part two, we're going to address uh, the elephant in the room is, you know, is uh, the use of uh, melatonin indiscriminate? Is it a threat to uh, children? Are uh, kids uh, winding up in emergency rooms uh, in droves? Uh, and are poison control reports uh, soaring because of the ubiquity of melatonin in our uh, in our supplements? Um, is that a problem? And also, you know, specific dosing. And you have some interesting uh, ideas on dosing, a little bit of a less is more approach when it comes to certain problems. And uh, we're going to also talk about um, uh, something which uh, I would call your, mel your uh, melatonin pyramid, which doesn't entirely rely <laughs> on taking melatonin. I mean, there's a sort of a melatonin lifestyle that we need uh -huh. to uh, undertake to more naturally recalibrate our uh, melatonin uh, patterns uh, because, well, you know, taking a pill, yeah, that's an appealing notion, but, you know, there's a lot more to that in uh, our overall melatonin economy. Uh, when it comes to us individually. So uh, we'll reserve that for part two. Stay tuned. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Uh, our guest is Deanna Minnick, and we'll be right back with more on the subject of melatonin. This is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.